0: Welcome to Frost and Sullivan's Growth, Innovation and Leadership Briefing. Today's event is titled Four Ways to Monetize Data. My name is Anna. Our panel leader today is Archana Vidyasagar, Research Director for our Visionary Innovation Group here at Frost and Sullivan. Our presenter is Chantiana Habib, a Research Consultant here at Frost and Sullivan, and it is our pleasure to introduce our guest speakers. Chandis Quill, Senior VP, General Manager with AELC, and Trey Stevens, Consultant with Echo. With that, I would now like to hand the session over to Archana.
1: Thank you, Anna, for kicking us off, and a very warm welcome to everyone diving into the briefing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Also, a very special thanks to Chandos and Trey for being a part of this webinar and sharing their insights with us. Thank you. My name is Archana Vidya from the Visionary Innovation Group at Boston Sullivan. And today we will be looking at the topic of data monetization and how industry, consumer and enterprise data can be used literally as currency to increase revenues, decrease costs, find new customers, unlock new revenue streams and many, many more. The possibilities really are plenty. So we have quite a lot of ground to cover today and a pretty fast agenda. We will start by providing you with a market perspective from Prof. Sullivan, which will be based off of a study we recently completed on data monetization. We will throw some light on routes to monetizing data, industry frameworks, general guidelines, and also share industry use cases. We will then be followed by our guest speakers, who will be offering us a perspective on the importance of industry collaboration and how ALP and Axiom are enabling this. Now, this is a very important aspect for all of us to understand the enablement of collaboration and data sharing. And more importantly, privacy-compliant data sharing is critical to the success of these models. And finally, we will open the floor for live Q&A. Please do keep your questions coming in. Uh, We will be taking close to 10 to 15 minutes towards the end of the webinar to address those questions. So with that, um, let's get started with the Frost and Sullivan perspective first, and I will begin by expanding on the market context a little bit. As we all know, data is an ever-expanding enterprise asset, and it's expanding and growing by the day. Our market analysis shows that we're already in the zettabyte era, and to put that in perspective, one zettabyte is around one trillion gigabytes. And what we're expecting to see by 2022 is entering potentially the multi-zettabyte era, wherein we will be generating nearly five zettabytes a year. Now, this volume of data and the voluminous growth in data is certainly interesting, but what is even more interesting to see is the growth in variety of data that is coming in. Now, as you can see in the slide here under data format, the new emerging types of video image and audio voice data is going to bring new perspectives, context, and even dimensions to our understanding of business situations, virtual worlds, and the environment in which our assets operate in. So what we have here on the right are a few examples, interesting ways in which we are seeing industry participants leverage these new forms of data to offer really interesting services to their end customers. We have John Deere here uh, that leverages both sensor data and image data and video data to offer condition monitoring services. Now, this is a very popular service, usually deployed as part of sleep management activities. What is interesting in John Deere's case is how they're leveraging uh, the diagnostic phone codes that are coming from the sensor data, as well as image data to offer real-time support. What we do is during remote maintenance, they look at images, video feeds, and leverage image recognition software to identify visible wear and tear and other issues on the surface that is indicative of the vehicle's condition. So this way, by combining both the sensor data and uh, this type of sort of real-time image information, they're able to offer much more prescriptive, informed, uh, condition-based maintenance and scheduling uh, for their fleet managers. Now, video data is another important new data asset that's growing, also growing in terms of both volume and variety. Apparently, there is close to one hour worth of content that is uploaded on YouTube every second. Now, that is a lot of video and image metadata. Um, what's interesting is how cities and uh, uh, you know, smart city communities are looking at this video data to offer smart citizen services. For example, Copenhagen is looking at a traffic system. Uh, wherein they will be using image recognition to distinguish between cars and bicyclists at a traffic signal and adopt priority signaling for a bicyclist as an incentive for choosing a greener mode of transportation. Now, Copenhagen does have a bigger vision to become the world's first carbon neutral society, and they are consciously trying to reduce the number of cars on the road. And it's interesting to see how they they will be leveraging video feeds from traffic lights to um, promote more bicyclists on the road rather than car owners. Um, While that's uh, of interest, there's also um, a lot of activity that we're seeing in voice data as well, especially with the rise in personal assistance. Of course, we've chosen to highlight um, the poster ball here with Amazon Alexa, but there are so many other personal assistants around this, whether it may be Siri or any uh, consumer hardware out there comes with conversational skills now. And the more uh, improvements we see in NLP natural language processing and capabilities in text-to-speech and speech-to-text sort of programming, uh, we can expect to see a lot more activity and a lot more traction from voice data. Uh, And Also, I'd like to note that it's not just the consumer hardware companies that are entering into this space. We're also seeing automotive companies, healthcare companies, retail companies getting into both the hardware and software business in enabling voice data services and voice-enabled customer services. Now, in the previous slide, we saw how different diverse data sets are growing and how industries are using them. So I guess the question is, how do we monetize this data? How do we take this to market? We see typically four business models in data monetization that companies that we analyze in our research appear to be taking. Now, as part of this research, uh, Chai Sanya, who is our lead author for this study, and you'll be hearing from her shortly, and myself, uh, we looked at a lot of different use cases. We spoke to industry participants, a lot of data brokers, startups. Uh, industry, incumbents and conglomerates were looking into data sharing practices and data monetization activities. And we sort of measured them and benchmarked them across four parameters, um, uh, two large parameters and four classifications, really. Uh, The first parameter being to monetization, which could be either direct or indirect, and uh, the other parameter being data productization, which could go from being raw data to aggregated and analyzed data. Now, direct path to monetization is where you're, ex- where you're externally positioning data as the product itself. And indirect monetization is where you're leveraging that data internally to better an existing product or service. Now, in terms of data productization, raw data is essentially first party data in its truest form, which could be Excel to contact list to email. The aggregated, analyzed data, which could include insights, analytics, business intelligence, BI, et cetera. So depending on where your data service sits, um, along these four parameters, uh, two parameters, uh, your data service will fall under one of these four buckets. Now, the indirect models have been quite popular, and I think it's a slightly more mature industry. Uh, has been mainstream for a while, especially in the marketing, insurance uh, fields. Uh, but what we are seeing uh, gain more traction and gain more attention, at least in the last couple of years, is certainly the direct business models where the data itself is becoming a product. So let me give you uh, a few examples of these uh, direct uh, business models that we are seeing that the data is externally positioned as a product itself. So the data bottering model, the direct data bartering model, data is exchanged for data, as the name suggests. And a very good example of this is Waze, which is a – Mobile journey app company that trades data for data with resellers of geographical mapping information. Now, in return for data on maps from these uh, geographical mapping information companies, uh, which offers base the lay of the land, point of interest, points, etc., Waze returns data on traffic, D-trap, road work and collisions that the app is collecting from its users. So it's a win-win for both companies. Mapping companies benefited from real-time dynamic information that was coming from Waze and Waze benefited from a ready-to-go map product that they could just launch um, their service, uh, you know, build their service on and launch immediately. Now so clearly the advantage of data bartering, at least the lesson that we have from Waze, is faster go-to-market time. If Waze had to build its own map, it would have taken Waze at least six months to launch it in new cities. But because it had access to these ready-to-go maps, um, and they gained access to it by opening up their proprietary data to the provider of these map map services, they'd be able to launch themselves in new cities within uh, two months. So that is the uh, sort of key lesson and key takeaway here with data chain. So if you are a company that's looking to enter new markets, new customers, and you need new data for it, you know, look to your vendor, look to your uh, value chain, look to your industry peers if they might be interested in opening up their data for you in exchange for proprietary data that you own. And it looks like this process is going to get much more easier and organized with the second business model here, which is direct data brokering models. We are seeing the rise of marketplaces where interested buyers of data can see interested sellers of data. And the data broker companies acting as a measurement package and sell the data uh, in a way that is uh, sort of conducive for uh, for any of the data buyers and data consumers. Sometimes they sell to other brokers, sometimes they sell to businesses, sometimes they simply act as a middleman to enable the negotiation and the purchase of data. Now, there are a lot of data brokers out there, uh, new age data brokers that we're seeing. The ones that particularly take our interest are the industry-specific data brokers, like uh, Autonomo, for example, which is an automotive data broker company that is buying data from automotive OEMs and reselling it to interested parties now uh, my driver behavior data of course is very useful for an insurance company that's looking to sell car insurance for me but what's interesting is it's also useful for marketing you know where I go geolocation services you know a Starbucks might be interested in uh, selling me you know ads on Instagram for drive-through deals and things like that so there's a big big huge opportunity that goes just beyond the automotive landscape and domain and that's the you know interesting um, opportunity that these data brokers are opening up they're taking the automotive data to non-automotive players and really opening up new markets for them
0: um,
1: we have many more examples coming up and chaitanya will be walking you through that uh, before i hand it over to her just to a uh, very quick uh, look at um, the service architecture and uh, the different ways in which we are seeing data products being packaged and delivered to the customers um, as you can see here, we've sort of put it on a spectrum going from raw data to prepared data um, and data products to data services. Uh, if you look at uh, raw data sets, we we'll we're seeing is, again, mostly within the data broker domain. Uh, we are seeing new players such as Darvix and DataStreamX that provide downloadable Excel to analyze packages. Now, API is another popular method uh, used largely by mapping companies and also for capturing live data. For anyone who's not from the programming world, API stands for Application Programming Interface, and it's a tool that gets data from a database uh, in a way that uh, the developer would like it in a format and uh, in a program uh, that they would like to work with the data. Um, so you're working with Excel, it's sort of like an Excel plugin through which you can request for data to be sent in in the Excel format. Uh, so, this is very popular with, again, as I said, with mapping companies and uh, a lot of organizations, whether it's maybe Quando, which is an interesting case study, which we will look at later, all of them offer uh, API calls and API service architectures. Now, analytics also is a very popular approach. Uh, we've, we've already seen this come in in the B2C world. It's interesting to see it grow in the B2B space as well. Uh, these are subscription-based user-friendly dashboards that pull data from different sources and customizes the visualization. Uh, we're seeing um, banking company, uh, companies and organizations such as Barclays develop such dashboards uh, and make it accessible to uh, enterprises to look at their spending patterns you know, compare uh, their financial strength against industry peers, et cetera. So there's a lot of analytics, a lot of metadata also that, you know, banks have realized that they are working with that they can benchmark uh, their customers where then, you know, offer consulting and advisory services. So you can examine what med- metadata you have, similar metadata you have, and what sort of, uh, you know, aggregate perspectives that you can offer to your customers. And then, of course, we have uh, the marketing services, which again is a very, very mature market. Um, especially with um, you know online advertising uh, push based marketing services has seen a lot of traction you know uh, with ad exchanges and auction based uh, marketplaces data management platforms this is a very uh, huge market that's growing and we, you know listed some of the uh, uh, popular companies here but this again uh, is going to see a shift towards a type of personalization. Uh, that's clearly uh, the more important um, sort of opportunity in uh, customer targeting and identification, wherein in addition to the identity of a customer, which is age, location, gender, et cetera, it's also now important to track the behavioral traits of the customer to really hyper-personalize geo services, context services, et cetera. So this data context is going to become even more important in this sort of push-based marketing services. Um, in the next slide, we have uh, the different data monetization frameworks, please, again, that we've picked up from our research and uh, the different approaches that we've seen among uh, the analyzed and benchmark companies. And at this point, I would like to invite Chaitanya uh, to the presentation to walk us through these slides.
2: Chaitanya? Sure. Thank you so much, Ashana. So now that we've identified and understood the routes to monetize data, it is important to look at the use cases associated with these monetization models. Because we believe that the success of a data monetization model depends on identifying the right strategy and flow of data across the value chain. So we started off with enlisting around 40 framework plays, but after identifying the use cases associated with the monetization routes, we narrowed them down to seven major framework plays which are process optimization, product optimization, marketing solutions, sales optimization, risk prevention, and future proofing, creating new markets, and creating new customers through data monetization. These framework plays are designed to help companies gain access to the real value of their data and identify any kinds of process gridlocks, customer challenges, and other areas of improvements in their business processes. As you can see, these framework plays are ranked in terms of the level of productization of data ranging from already existing business models to new and radical approaches. To better understand these framework plays, we've used some unique B2B case examples to analyze and demonstrate the the usability of each of these framework plays. For example, we have process optimization and product optimization, which are currently at the core of the existing data business models and are found at the lower end of the spectrum. And incrementally, we can see we have marketing and sales optimization and risk management. At the other end of the spectrum, however, we see some radical business opportunities like creating new markets and creating new um, customers through data monetization, which we will be discussing at the later stage of this presentation. Um, So as in this next slide, you can see um, we have highlighted around three major framework plays, which currently have the highest potential for monetizing opportunities, but we predict as data use cases will evolve, potential for monetization opportunities. In the future, new avenues will be created that will transform uh, the traditional use cases. As you see that here, uh, marketing solutions and sales optimization have a slightly higher potential as they have a more transformative approach towards data monetization. Moving away from personalization, we're going towards hyper-personalization, which requires not only at an identity level data points, but more advanced analytical data points in conjugation with behavioral science and gamification to nudge the customers towards the desired outcomes. And um, we have companies for this, like for example, we have Expedia, which provides personalized travel ads throughout the customer's purchasing cycle by analyzing their purchasing behaviors through real-time data that is generated by their website. Secondly, here we have process optimization, which refers to driving efficiencies in operational tasks such as supply chain management and product pricing. An example for this would be the SAP Integrated Business Planning, which is a real-time supply chain planning software that connects stakeholders across an organization and integrates supply chain and operations by gathering the real-time data on demand and provides supply chain planning and inventory optimization for their consumers. Whereas, on the other hand, product optimization actually refers to improvising the product design and product utility. Lastly, um, on the higher end, we see risk mitigation and future proofing through data, which helps in assessing risks across organizations and providing risk-free financial services by avoiding frauds and financial misconducts using data-driven approaches. An example for this would be a company like Cabbage, which is doing an excellent work in this area, using data from third-party providers to analyze the risk of pre-financing and lending work for capitals for, for their corporate customers. So once you've actually defined the use case of the data, the next fundamental question is how do we price these data sets? The foundation of a a data monetization model depends on, most importantly, having the right frame of play in place that aligns with the expected business outcomes. The pricing rationale is decided based on the use case of the data set. So there are accordingly two types of rationales based on the following, which is known use cases and unknown use cases. Known use cases is when you have an understanding of the end use of the data set. For example, in this case, for automotive data, we have define the use cases such as telematics, it can be usage-based insurance, it can be for location data, GPS data, etc. This would mean, while pricing the data set, the end consumer's willingness to pay is defined by the value provided by the data. So, on the contrary, we have the unknown use cases when the end use case is not defined. Usually, such data sets are sold as a raw data, so the value of the data, which is basically the consumer's willingness to pay is defined by using the following approaches. First one would be like the auction based pricing where the bid is placed on the highest on the value to the individual customers who's getting the highest value. Next is um, demand and supply model where demand is directly dependent on the quality of the data and the benefit to its end users. And lastly, we have the A B testing model where instead of Doing a one-price-fits-all, this is a more customized approach to target different type of consumers who have different use cases. So, while pricing a data set, one important thing to consider would be like the three main factors, which are, um, which are tied here in this pyramid scheme, which is cost of data acquisition at the end, which is the base of the data generation, which is the cost of the base of data generation, the consumer's willingness to pay, which is at the mirror, which is defined by the value the data provides to its consumers. And lastly, we have higher above the data pricing levers, which are basically the qualitative indicators for the data. So, these three factors together build a base price that defines the value of the data set. And if we look into it, different use cases might need different pricing models and payment terms. Most data sellers let consumers choose their best fit based on their requirements. So, let's look at an example here. For a usage-based insurance, the end user spends on an average around $1,300 per year per car. Suppose the insurance providers are willing to pay 3 to 5% of the revenue generated by the product for the data, including other factors like the quality of data, etc. the end price of the data generated per car per year would come up to $25, or this would be for a pay-as-you-drive model and around $40 for pay-how-you-drive model. However, these pricing models are combined of value and volume-based approaches Data can be packaged in many ways, but the ultimate outcome is dependent on the end consumer's need. So here, if you look at a regulatory perspective, I guess one most important question we all have is who owns the data? There are multiple stakeholders in the process from data generation to data aggregation to the final service provider. This follows up to the question of who should be held in obligation to protect and regulate the data in question. As an organization dealing with any kind of data, we think that it is important to stay ahead of the curve in terms of regulation and governance because data in case is a very sensitive asset, as we all know. So we have the EU's, um, the European Union's GDPR law, which is the General Data Regulation, uh, Protection Regulation law, for instance. This law focuses on empowering the principle of privacy, providing strict controls over cross-border data transmissions and giving citizens the right to opt out of their data. But unlike this GDPR laws, the United States, however, follows a sector-specific data protection laws that govern the handling of data differently for different industries and different sectors. So. Uh, the following slide actually shows the steps to ensure data privacy and protection in your organization and how to be compliant in handling data. We have a stepwise process for having a pl- compliant and secure data system in your organization. But according to Frost & Sullivan's research, the, frost, the future of data regulation will be transformed. Consumers will in future have more control over their data and the rise In concepts like data as labor, consumers will become more savvy and open to sharing their data for compensations, and they basically urge for more visibility against just blanket data collections. With the abundance of technologies like artificial intelligence and virtual reality, data regulations, we believe, will shift from traditional one-model-fits-all to a more agile and use-case-based approaches. So I guess looping back to um, our radical approaches, uh, the, um, the industries, the, the future of data monetization industry, Frost and Sullivan has actually observed two main industry verticals that play a major role in the future of data monetization industry, which are automotive and healthcare industry. Automotive and mobility industry is actually generalizing into a much broader set of solutions across boundaries to go beyond the traditional industry segments. Automotive data monetization opportunities is going to hit around $33 billion in revenue for auto manufacturers and OEMs by 2025. Some identified key trends like shared mobility platforms and connected vehicle services will create new market opportunities in the automotive industry. According to our recent study, shared mobility platform, which is mobility-as-a-service platform, is expected to unlock new value chains for OEMs by giving them a first hand on the consumer mobility needs data. So this opportunity will actually allow them to monetize on that data by catering to a specific subscription programs for specific relevant customers. So there will be basically three players that will play a major role in the success of Mobility as a Service, which is the service providers like the ride-sharing platforms, public transportation systems, OEMs, et cetera, and the service aggregators, which will actually be a new market that will be created in the data monetization industry. Um, And lastly, we have the consumers within the connected ecosystem. Um, Consumers will be more willing to share their data for incentives. Looking into the healthcare industry, primary healthcare providers will move from physical spaces and digital apps Wearable technology will be commercialized and smartphones will be equipped with more biosensors and the capabilities are um, never-ending. Data monetization across healthcare sectors, we believe, will be driven uh, more value-driven rather than outcome-based driven for patients, drug manufacturers, medical devices, OEMs, etc., so looking more into the use cases, I would like to um, give in to Archana to just discuss industry use cases and what will be the final steps. Thank you.
1: Great, thank you so much, Atanya. Um, so in just this time, I'm gonna uh, move through these slides fairly quickly. Um, so what you have here on the slide is a description of different types of use cases that we have identified on a scale as um, levels of deception that we see they bringing into uh, their respective industries. Uh, As Chaitanya noted, um, a lot of the industries are moving uh, beyond their product. They're moving into this, this product, the service domain, and data is going to be a very crucial aspect of that. Uh, whether it may be police management or uh, connected navigation or autonomous cars, uh, clearly uh, there is a need for convergence between industries um, and also uh, for data sharing and collaboration. Um, and uh, we would be happy to speak with you regarding any of these use cases. We have covered this in quite a lot of detail in our research. Um, you know, would we'll be happy to give you a guided approach in terms of how to approach uh, data monetization, what necessary steps you need to take, uh, data audit, how to productize data, um, how to collaborate and how to take your products to market. Uh, we have developed interesting insights, uh, benchmark successful case studies uh, for you to take lessons from. So very quickly about a study uh, that will be accessible on our platform uh, within a week uh, from now. Um, we have, as you can see, looked at the uh, routing models, the framework place um, we have benchmarked case, case studies, the ones that you see here listed here, and also, as chaitanya mentioned, nearly forty use cases were examined um, uh, as part of our benchmarking exercise um, and we've also uh, dug really deep into the pricing approaches and pricing of data is really one of the most uh, difficult challenges and a question that a lot of our clients ask us often, you know, it's extremely elastic to the use case, as, as Chaitanya explained. You know, my personal data on um, identi- identifi- identifying data such as gender, uh, you know, name, location, et cetera, might be useful to an insurance company but may not be use- as useful to a consumer hardware company, and they will be willing to pay different prices. So understanding that use cases and how to go about that is extremely essential, and we have We're building our database and, you know, benchmarking these use cases for you. And, of course, we, as as Prof. Sullivan, through all of our industry verticals, we are also tracking data protection and privacy regulation across uh, uh, different uh, thematic opportunities and industry verticals as well.
3: Um, Okay, Andis, do you want me to go ahead and um, forward to the presentation? I'll get started while Trey dials in on a different line.
0: Sure, that'd be great. Thank you.
3: Okay, no worries. So while I forward here, uh, this is Chandis Quill, Senior Vice President and General Manager at ALC. Um, ALC has uh, been around for about 40 years. We specialize in helping clients with their first party data management and also customer acquisition strategy and services. Uh, We're headquartered in Princeton with offices in several other cities such as New York and San Francisco. And I'm very happy to participate in the presentation today. Our founder, uh, Don Rappaport, has an excellent quote that I think is perfect for today's topic, which is "What's old is new again, and what's new is powerful." And this quote is particularly uh, relevant to our business because, for these past 40 years, we've been working with brands to monetize their data across traditional and digital channels in the advertising and direct marketing ecosystem. Um, This has been especially successful for companies that started off in the direct mail space. So, uh, companies like retail and catalog, retail and catalogers. In fact, our first client around data monetization was Neiman Marcus. Um, But there's other industries where this has been very relevant as well. nonprofit organizations, organizations, publishers and, and several other industries. We estimate that over these years, we've enabled about four and a half billion dollars in incremental revenue for our clients. So um, data monetization, as kind of defined earlier, is using data assets to create economic value. Um, Similarly to Frost and Sullivan's view of data monetization, we see two paths for companies to monetize their data, both uh, indirect monetization and direct. Indirect is using your customer data internally to improve your products and services, uh, your operations, your overall customer experience, which in turn increases brand loyalty and revenue in your primary business. Direct monetization, we define as using your customer data to create new revenue channels making data available to other companies or use cases outside of your primary business. I think um, it's helpful to, to take a quick look back at, at how we got to a lot of the things that were discussed earlier in the presentation. So data monetization has actually been a part of the direct marketing industry when it started many years ago. Um, direct marketers began to exchange lists with other, non-competitive companies in order to increase their opportunity to find new prospects. Um, And then as monetization of their data expanded, direct marketers began reaching out to service providers to help them manage their first-party customer data and facilitate the buying and selling of data. So very similar and good example for a lot of the models that Frost and Sullivan discussed earlier. Then over time, um, we had the launch of Facebook, and the era of digital advertising began. Direct marketers now have more channels than ever to find prospects and reach their customers, and this in turn has driven the rise of big data analytics and technology. A lot of really fascinating and exciting technological changes, as was discussed earlier, I think are enabling companies to find all kinds of new ways to monetize their data. We see that in the next 10 years, all forms of media and advertising will be addressable using data, and the opportunity for companies to monetize their data indirectly or directly will continue to multiply. This migration of advertising from traditional channels to digital channels will continue to drive the need for data. And this chart from Winterberry, you can see how the spend on data is shifting from offline to digital. And the overall US spend on data being estimated at about 16 billion. So just a quick way to quantify the opportunity that companies have to take advantage of monetizing data in this space. Our clients are starting to take advantage of this shift from direct to uh, direct and offline data to digital advertising and online. Um, and a good example of that is moving to monetizing web traffic in addition to direct mail lists. And uh, another way is making data more widely available via digital platforms and publishers. So two practical ways that we see clients already making Adjustments in their monetization strategy based on this shift. The shift to digital, though, requires that you are able to connect all of your customer data in order to take advantage of data monetization, whether indirectly or directly. Um, offline data is about real people living at real addresses, not just a mixture of IDs like in the digital space. Um, and identity graphs that are built from offline and online signals are uh, better connected and definitely more accurate. So companies need to get use these identity graphs to get a full and complete picture of their customers. Um, without having this connection, you don't know if someone responding to your ad is a loyal customer or a potential prospect. And without this kind of connection, you can't communicate to your customers seamlessly regardless of what channel they use. And even more importantly, without this kind of connection of data, only a fraction of your data is going to be available to monetize. So in order to achieve uh, data monetization this, this whole new exciting digital era, you need a fully configurable identity crosswalk to connect your known data such as customer names and addresses, et cetera, to anonymous data, which would be things like cookies, mobile ad IDs, IP addresses, and all in a privacy compliant manner. Just a quick case study here, um, highlights for children, which is a great example of what we see with um, our clients in our industry. For over 70 years, Highlights for Children has provided products for families with kids and that help children become their best selves. They are a client that has been monetizing their data in the direct mail, kind of direct marketing industry for quite a long time, and we've helped them grow their revenue pretty significantly over the years. However, you know, you can't just uh, stay in the same place. You have to continue to evolve. And they have um, looked at needing to adjust their approach to take advantage of some of these new dynamics in the market. So we help them leverage analytics and modeling to create new audiences to monetize and have uh, recently helped them move from traditional offline channels to sell those audiences to digital channels. And overall, we've helped them generate millions of dollars in incremental revenue. So I'll wrap up with just two more slides just some thought starters that I hope um, the audience finds helpful here. One is, you know, should you monetize your data? Is it right for you? And I think there's three kind of general buckets of questions that you need to ask within your organization. One is how important is revenue generating new revenue streams to your company? Uh, are you monetizing your data well today, even internally? And if you're going to monetize your data externally, do you have the appropriate executive sponsorship? Also need to look at data governance and privacy type questions. What data do you have available to monetize? Is your data clean, complete, and connected so that you can make it accessible and ready to use for external use cases? And then importantly, do you have correct permissions, privacy policies, and controls in place? And if the answer of all this is you want to move forward with data monetization, then thinking ahead about what success looks like for you, who are who are the companies that are going to find your data valuable, um, what would be your go-to-market plan, is your data avail- uh, valuable in raw form, or do you need to create inferred data by combining it with other data, and then what barriers might exist to proceed. So getting started, just a couple of um, Ideas here, one is assessing all of your offline and online data and privacy policies. In today's uh, regulatory environment and privacy environment, I think this is an important thing to do regardless of monetization, um, but an important first step for sure. Um, Then also looking at the data volumes you have. Again, do you need to um, do anything addition to your data in order to make it valuable? Um, Doing an evaluation to help you identify the the best areas of opportunity and build a business case. And then if you move forward with monetizing your data, making sure you have a go-to-market strategy and implementation steps. And then finally, make sure that, you know, this isn't a one-time thing. You need to have an ongoing process for monitoring, monitoring results, reporting, and looking for continuous areas of improvement. Thank you. I'll turn it over to Trey.
4: <laughs> Thank you, Candice. I hope everybody can hear me better now. My apologies, yes, for the, <laughs> <laughs> my apologies for the bad connection. So I will be concise in my comments. Um, I believe we got to how do I monetize my data? Um, that's where I wanted to start. So a couple of different ways to monetize data. So this is an example of a luxury car manufacturer. And the point I wanted to make here is is so often we grew up in different industry verticals, myself being retail and financial services and now data. Uh, But I wanted to give you a key concept is that companies like Chandis and I work with can help you expand your data and make it available outside of the industry vertical that you live in. So as an example here, you can see, Luxury Car Maker can, with Axiom's help, create audiences and make those audiences available to jewelry retailers, high-end fashion brands, hotels, and smartphone manufacturers. This is a great example of how you can create first-party monetization and create that incremental revenue from the data that you captured in a privacy-compliant way. One of the emerging trends that we see happening, particularly with the changing privacy legislation landscape is what we like to call collaboration. Collaboration, simply said, is second-party data sharing. It's about enhancing safe, privacy-compliant sharing of data between partners. And what this looks like is it's, it's collaboration with the data. You can monetize the data if you choose, or you can simply use it as a partnership leverage point but it's the exchange of data that allows partners to share data back and forth. Some simple examples of collaborations with partners is one that Atkins has been involved in for the better 20 years is helping credit card companies and airlines do an overlap analysis and reporting based on both parties' data. So the example of collaboration is you've got data from both partners going both ways. Both are able to receive value and benefits from this collaboration environment. Then in the more complex collaboration environment, a retailer can make data available to consumer packaged goods companies, auto manufacturers, um, hotels. This is a great example of how you can monetize data. Again, both ways. In the retail industry, many of you will know, retailers are very data-rich, whereas the consumer packaged goods companies don't have detailed information on the customers that are actually buying their product. Collaboration and being able to share and leverage the data helps the retailer possibly create an incremental revenue stream while also leveraging the data to drive top-line sales by allowing the consumer packaged goods companies access the insights from the data and those consumer packaged goods companies leveraging marketing to drive traffic to the retail. Some of the use cases we see in collaboration, as I've said, overlap analysis, M&A assessment, um, joint marketing, these are all great examples of monetization within a collaboration environment for second-party data sharing. Some case studies that Axiom has seen, these are always interesting. Um, In a first-party monetization sense, we have a satellite TV provider that's driven a million dollars a year in incremental revenue based on the audiences that we've helped them create. Um, This company is beginning to consider second-party data sharing within a collaboration environment. We also have a healthcare partner. Speaking back to the Frost and Sullivan research, we have a healthcare partner that's driving this number has actually increased since this slide was created. This company is driving $2 million monthly or over $24 million a year in incremental revenue based on data and audiences that they've created. With that, I'll turn it back over to the Frost and team.
0: Thank you so much, Trey. Thank you so much, Chanda. So we have uh, time for one question here. Any other questions that we do not get to address live, we'll, uh, we'll get back uh, with you. So our one question here um, reads, what are the business models in data modernization with the public sector cities? Sure,
1: maybe um, I can get the conversation going on that question and I'd invite um, Trey, Taipanya, and Chandler also to weigh in. Um, certainly, I think um, I kind of alluded to the smart city communities and how uh, they are both opening up their city data as well as collaborating with uh, mobility companies and energy companies uh, to provide all these uh, smart cities citizen services. Um, interestingly, we've seen um, as part of our research a lot of interesting products that are very much positioned to cities. Uh, Uber, for example, they offer uh, this new tool called Movement uh, that takes um, years of chip data that they've done across these cities um, worldwide and they've made it available uh, to city authorities and also to the general public to understand traffic patterns, et cetera. Um, and another interesting, uh, again, from the mobility space, is this company called uh, Strava, uh, which is a popular uh, biking app on iPhone. And apparently one of the biggest struggles in the cycling industry is um, uh, finding parking areas for bicycles. And uh, one of the difficulties the city authorities have is in counting occupancy rates of these uh, parking spots, and you know how many more they need to build um, for their uh, bicyclist community. And like I said earlier, a lot of cities are focusing on sort of um, incentivizing their citizens to move to a cleaner mode of transport. So providing this parking infrastructure is a big part of that puzzle. Um, and they are actually uh, leveraging data from Strava and you know the data that it's crowdsourcing from its uh, bicyclist community uh, to count occupancy rates and estimate and make estimates around how many more parking spots they need in their city. And uh, most companies, they start offering this as a sort of a premium service. It's free in the beginning, and then they start charging for it. Strava actually does um, uh, charge the city authorities for the data that they' are accessing, I believe the data on each individual Java member uh, in an area runs at a rate of 80 cents uh, for 12 months time span. Um, So yeah, so these are very interesting ways in which we are seeing um, cities kind of engage uh, with data and companies also creating these sort of visual dashboards and analytics BI uh, for uh, cities. Um, Any comments from uh, Trey or Chandos on how maybe uh, you've worked with the public sector and how data monetization can be an opportunity uh, for this community as well?
3: Um, this is Chandis. No, I, I think that that's your responses were good. I think the same principles apply. I mean, looking at the different types of data that's out there, especially with technology now, um, and thinking about, you know, where there's gaps or use cases, where that would be valuable, I think, is a place to start. So I don't have anything additional to add there.
4: Yeah, chiming in on Chandis's comments, uh, when it comes to data monetization, a good starting point once you clear privacy, compliance, and ethical use is the uniqueness of the data and the scale. Those are the two things, two levers I would leverage in thinking about it.
1: Excellent. Um, well, thank you both. And uh, um, another aspect, another industry that we sort of didn't put the spotlight on today is energy. Uh, and of course, energy is also a huge vertical sector uh, where there is again terabytes of uh, consumer data being picked up. Um, you know, we are building our analysis and research on the, that field as well. And just wanted to let the audience know that, uh, you know, to expect feedback from us on data monetization within the energy vertical as well after automotive and healthcare, this is um, another domain uh, to be uh, interested in and to kind of keep your radar open to. Excellent. Anna, so if you don't have any further questions, I think we can um, close the presentation. Um, any closing comments from your outside?
0: Yes, uh once again we'd like to thank uh Chandis from ALC and also Trey from Axiom for joining us today. And um if there is any additional questions or you'd like to speak with um our team directly, I have posted our contact details on your screen at this time, and for those that uh, entered the session uh, late, we do have the on-demand recording that will be available shortly once, uh, once I end the session, so just look out for that uh, recording, and you can listen to it from the beginning, and we want to thank everyone for joining us today, and this concludes today's uh, presentation. Thank you.